revelation of the church, this book. And I pray that tonight, Lord, not only those here, but those watching on video and those listening by radio will have an eternal seed of the Word of God planted in their souls. And Lord, it'll spring up into everlasting life. Lord, we pray that your hand will be upon us right now. And we thank you, not only here, but for those in the healing room, that they will be healed. That, Lord, your very presence to heal would be in that healing room. And, Lord, as they pray for the sick, miracles will happen. Miracles will take place. And thank you for giving hope and life to those that are coming in without it. Giving them hope that God has got it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them the word is good. Amen. It is good. Now we're in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And um, tonight we're going to look at God's five-fold gift to the church. Now I want you to uh, remember the last time we saw in chapter 4 and verse 8 that having gifted all of his people... Jesus then sowed his church into the world. So say with me, I'm gifted. Now, because you're gifted, God took you, the gifted one, and sowed you into the world. So you're a sown seed. He first sows the incorruptible seed of the word of God into you and me, and that's how we're saved. But then once we are the carriers of that incorruptible seed, then he sows us like seed into the world. So everybody here has a, an incredible purpose. And you know what any seed is designed to do? It is designed to multiply. A seed is designed to produce after its own kind. So as God's sown seed into the world, then he expects to see uh, something come from his investment in you and me. Amen? So there ought to be other people springing up around us who have come to know the Lord because of us or have been helped because of us, encouraged because of us. And so like I think of this Sunday, there's going to be a whole lot of seed sowing. And people are going to be saved. And then they're going to go out and sow the same seed. And I shared with you last week that incredible statistic. It's, it's unbelievable. But with one seed sown into good ground and left alone, it'll cover the world in seven years. Cover the world in seven years. That's the power of one seed. So what in the world can God do with one Christian fully yielded to him? You talk about seed. So Jesus sowed us into the world. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Notice he didn't say be insulated from the world. He said, go into it. Go into all the world. Don't be in a church bubble, but go into all the world. So I'm sending you out this week, church. Go into the world and invite them to come and hear the gospel Sunday morning. Go into the world. Amen? He said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe is going to be condemned. And Jesus said that. Now, you'll notice that the next two verses are in parenthesis, uh, and Paul is explaining the word ascended. Now, let's just read what he says. Verse 9, now this, this is chapter 4. Now this he ascended, what does it mean, but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who 
ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, here's what he's saying. That the same Christ who descended from heaven came to earth to be born in Bethlehem that he might redeem us, also went back to heaven. He ascended. Remember, he lifted up his hands in front of the disciples, lifted up his arms, blessed them, and he was taken up into the clouds where he disappeared. And the angels appeared and said to them, in the same way he left, he's going to return. So the one that first descended and became a baby in Bethlehem also ascended again and went back to glory as the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. So, so the, the descending of Jesus to earth is called in theology the great condescension. And boy, it was a great condescension. Uh, the Supreme New Testament Bible passage on this great condescension is found in Philippians, and I want us to read it together. Can we? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let's read together. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself again. Do you see the condescension step after step? He keeps going down. He says he appeared in human form. He humbled himself again in obedience to God and did what? died a criminal's death on a cross, the great condescension. He left glory, became a man, and didn't stop with becoming a man, but went all the way to the cross and died for us. The great condescension of Jesus. Now let's read about the great elevation of Jesus as the reward of his obedience. He got rewarded greatly for his condescension. It says in verse 9, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Let's read it together. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and where? Under the earth. And every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what that's telling us? Satan is going to say he is Lord. The demons are going to say he is Lord. Hitler is going to say he is Lord. Mussolini will say he is Lord. Every wicked Caesar that ever persecuted Christians is going to say he is Lord and bow the knee. That was God's elevation after Jesus' great condescension. Now we're going to look at the five anointed offices established by God for his church. So we're really shifting gears here, okay? Now look at chapter 4, verse 11. And I want you to notice how Paul is telling us the way God structured his church. He says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Now, I want you to notice something, folks, how Paul stresses that Jesus, he himself, you see it in that verse? He himself. He's wanting us to know this isn't a God or a man idea. This isn't man's notion or idea. Man didn't come up with this, these offices. But God did. The Lord did. He himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, 
Let's look at these offices one at a time. And the reason I want to take some time with these is because most Christians don't understand the structure of a local church. They don't understand what these names mean. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. How many of you have ever wondered what an apostle was? A real one. What it really means. How many of you ever met somebody who told you, I'm an apostle? Have you? Okay. How about a prophet? You met somebody who said, I'm a prophet. Okay. But you wondered, what does that really mean? Now, we know what an evangelist is, but the apostle, the prophet, if Jesus gave these offices to the church, then we who are members of a church ought to understand the offices. So let's look at them one at a time here. First, we have the apostle. The word apostle, which is in the Greek, apostolos, is, a com- is compounded from two words. Apo, A-P-O, meaning off or away, and stello, meaning to send. So an apostle, the actual name itself, means one who is sent. One who is sent by God. It designates somebody who has been sent with a commission as a delegate or an envoy or a messenger. How many of you here tonight believe that God still sends people? Do you? He does. And how many of you know that you are actually sent, at least you're called to minister in some form or fashion. Do you see yourself as sent? We know we're sown. He sowed us as seed into the world. But if we have been sown as a seed, doesn't it uh, stand a reason that we have also been sent? But an apostle is a little bit different. It's a little bit stronger word than just, you know, I'm called a witness or whatever. Uh, An apostle is a delegate or an envoy. In the New Testament, it's used as a technical term to refer to Christ-designated messengers who are given authority to speak for him and to establish his church. That's an apostle. Show me a real apostle and I'll show you somebody who has churches behind them. I've had people say to me, well, I'm apostle so-and-so, and I look behind them. What are you looking at? I want to see what church, where's the churches behind you? Because if you're an apostle, then you have established churches. That's the call of an apostle. The first apostles were the 12. Luke records in his gospel, quote, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated what? Apostolos, apostles. So Jesus came up with this. You're going to be my apostle, one of the 12. And then, of course, he had the inner three, Peter, James, and John, then the 12. Now, Notice the first thing he did after appointing them. After he appointed them, he sent them. It says those 12, or these 12, Jesus, read it with me, sent out, apostello, sent out with the following instructions. They were to go to the Jews only. They were to preach the kingdom is at hand. They were to heal the sick and raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out devils. So they were sent out, and notice, Those that were appointed were also anointed. If God appoints you to do a thing, he's going to anoint you to do that thing. If you're called to be a bird, he's going to give you wings to fly. If you're called to be a duck, he's going to give you feet to paddle with. If you're called to apostle, he's going to give you an anointing to do it. Now, these first apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection 
as was Matthias, who was selected to take Judas's place. The apostles were the first teachers. They were administrators of the church. And, but these responsibilities were soon delegated out to others as the apostles birthed churches. The apostles performed miracles. Remember, Paul would pray over a handkerchief, send it out. And when somebody that had a demon grabbed hold of the handkerchief, the demon came out screaming from a handkerchief. And Paul didn't ask you to pay him for it or send in a love offering for it. He just handed it out. And on that handkerchief, there was a tangible presence that when you grabbed hold of it, the power of God was on it. Now, now why God chose to place his delivering power on a piece of cloth, I don't know, but he did. Remember that Peter would walk down the street and his very shadow would heal people. So they started pushing people to the curb when Peter, Peter was walking by so that his shadow would cross over and they might be healed. And it says everybody that came under his shadow was healed. Why God chose to anoint a shadow, I don't know, but he did. I don't have to understand it. And if I'd have been there in that day and been sick, I'd have been jumping under that shadow. I don't care how he does it. Okay. But that was the apostles. They had incredible miraculous ministries and they generally established the church in Jerusalem and they went as far as Corinth, Macedonia and Rome. And we know that Thomas, remember old doubting Thomas, Thomas went as far as India establishing churches. Now, the million-dollar question is, do apostles exist today? This is very hotly debated in some circles, mainly in denominational circles usually. We believe here at Turning Point that there are apostles according to the definition of the word, which is sent ones. There are sent ones who go forth with a commission to build churches. Now, I've built three churches in my life, and I was always sent out by an apostolic um, ministry. And I established from scratch, Kathy and I, with God's gracing, built three churches from the ground up. One in East Texas and two here, and built them from the ground up. Now, I don't want to ever be called an apostle, but I have moved in an apostolic gracing when it comes to establishing churches. And I've seen other people try to do it. And I've seen them good people, good-hearted people, but it didn't happen. You know why? Because you've got to be truly graced of God to do it. Because nobody can start a church without the grace of God. Nobody can. So much is involved with it. But in that sense, there are apostles today. But listen carefully to me. They differ in key areas from the original apostles. Now let me tell you how they differ. First, They are not eyewitnesses to the resurrection. I wasn't there, obviously. The original 12, here's one of the key things about them. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw the risen Savior. And that's what made them unique among the 12. And this was the acid test of a true apostle in the days of early church history. Did you see the resurrected Savior? Were you an eyewitness of Jesus when he got up from the dead? For instance, when Judas was removed from the 12 for his betrayal of Christ, and of course he went out and committed suicide, the disciples needed to replace him. 
And Acts verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22 reveals the requirements that they look for. And here's what it says. Quote, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They weren't going to put somebody among the twelve who had not been with them as they followed the real earthbound Jesus and had seen his resurrection. This was one of the requirements of the twelve. Well, that's not true or real for any uh, apostles after that. Now, here's another unique characteristic, and this one really, really matters. Another unique characteristic of the early apostles was their writing of inerrant scripture. They wrote, they were used of God, holy men of God were moved on by the Holy Ghost, and they wrote inerrant scripture. They wrote scripture that doesn't have one mistake, one error, one missed comma, one wrong period, one nothing. Every jot and tittle was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the original documents. Peter, James, and John, and later to be added to the apostolic company, Paul, were all used of God to pen with inerrancy the New Testament. Now, let me just say as clearly as I know how, nobody today writes with inerrancy. Nobody. Now, I have a lot of favorite authors. I love Chuck Swindoll. I love his, his stuff. I've read many, many of his books. I, there's, I read books all the time, and there are many that really feed me. But here's what I know. None of them are anything like the Word of God you hold in your hand. That Bible is inerrant. That Bible is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So, so the Bible says of itself that it is inerrant. That means without error. No man today writes that way. No man writes that way. So anybody who says today they're an apostle, I guarantee you they're not writing anything inerrant. They're not writing God-breathed scripture like the 12 did. Are you with me? And that matters. That matters big. And then also the 12 New Testament apostles became the foundation stones of the church. And I don't know of any apostles today who are the foundation stones of a church like they were. As we read earlier in this, or read earlier in this study in Ephesians 2.20, look what it says. Quote, together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. So as they wrote that inerrant scripture, they served as the foundation of the church. And Jesus is the cornerstone, the most important stone in the whole building. No apostles today serve as the foundation of the church. Don't need to. It's already been done. So eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, writers of inerrant scripture, and the high honor of serving as foundation stones for the brand new fledgling church are all distinctions that set apart the 12 from any other apostolic company. So they are. So let me answer the question. Are there apostles today? Yes, but not like the 12. Not like the 12. Anybody serving in an apostolic capacity today would be somebody sent 
with a divine commission to plant churches like I have been before and provide apostolic oversight to them. Now, one commentator gives a great working definition of what might be a modern-day apostle. He says, the gift of apostle is the special ability which enables them to assume and exercise general leadership over a number of churches with an authority in spiritual matters that is spontaneously recognized and appreciated by those churches. Now, I'll give you an example of one. Well, John Wesley. John Wesley in the 1700s is one of the preachers of the Great Awakening. John Wesley went from city to city, town to town. I forget how many miles he traveled on horseback. It was unbelievable. It would put a driver of a car to shame. He just went, and he lived, I, I believe, into his 80s. Traveled constantly preaching. And he established churches all over America and England. And he oversaw those churches. So you might say that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was an apostolic type man, but not like the 12. Not like the 12. Similar, but not like the 12. Now, next we have the office of the prophet. When we hear the word prophet, we tend to think of prophets in the Old Testament like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. I love to read the prophets. I love Jeremiah. I love reading Jeremiah. And, and I'm trying to get through Ezekiel right now. All the wheels within wheels and eyes and creatures. and it, it's, it's, it's like reading something out of Star Wars. Really, it is. I think Spielberg got some of his creatures out, some of, some of the, the creatures he put in his movies out of Ezekiel. I mean, there's wheel, I mean uh, creatures with eyes all around and multiple wings and hands within the wings and all these different things. I like plain talk. And Jeremiah was a plain talker. But Ezekiel is the word of God as well. You just have to pay more, more uh, close attention. But we, when we think of prophets, we think of these guys, right? Thundering, furrow-browed, judgment-is-coming kind of guys. And that's the way they were. They were lone spokesmen for God. And boy, were they unpopular for speaking God's word. Isaiah was put into a hollow tree, sawn in half. Jeremiah some say at the end of his days, was martyred after all. They were thrown in lion's dens. They were thrown in pits. They were ostracized. They were alone for standing for God's word. That, that's the Old Testament kind of prophet. And here again, most importantly to me, these men were used of God to speak inerrant messages word for word, from the mouth of God that became Holy Scripture. There is no prophet today who does that. Okay? These were unique individuals. When God moved on them, you could count on every solitary word being fulfilled. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Not one jot or tittle shall pass away till all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. So every word is going to be full. There's not a wasted word with these God-inspired, inerrant prophets and apostles. No one today has that capacity. Not anyone today. Jumping into the New Testament, we read about prophets who came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And among them, a man named Agabus who prophesied of future events such as a coming famine. Now, you know what I noticed in the scriptures uh, today? That when Agabus said a, a famine is coming, the whole church prepared for that famine and the famine came. So he was accurate. God moved on him. 
And then he also warned Paul, that is, Agabus did, that you go to Jerusalem, Paul, and they're going to chain you up and they're going to bind you, and you're not going to like what they do to you. And he tried to dissuade Paul from going. Paul went anyway. He said, don't break my heart. Don't you know that I'm willing to die for the Lord Jesus? And I will go anyway. He's called me to Jerusalem. So there you had a prophet, a New Testament prophet, predicting future events. Now we also see prophets and teachers gathered in Antioch to worship and fast and seek God's guidance. And out of that gathering came a prophecy that said, look at this, Acts 13, 1 through 3, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And they were sent off on their missionary journeys. So here you've got prophets and apostles meeting and they're praying uh, and they're seeking God. And suddenly the Holy Ghost speaks and says, anoint Saul and Barnabas and send them. And they got sent by a prophetic word on their first missionary journey. Man, I wouldn't go to the mission field. I wouldn't go to start a local church. I, I, I wouldn't go to do any kind of major ministry at all without being sent by elders. Do you hear me? I wouldn't do it. I've never birthed a church without being sent out by apostolic elders, never. When I went and started preaching in the jail, I was sent out by my leadership. Way back when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I didn't go do anything uh, that was actually outreach and any kind of major ministry without being sent I don't believe that God calls us to be lone rangers or independent. I believe he, he wants us to flow out of a local fellowship yeah. under a covering. Yeah. And, and a lot of the time, folks, in our day, people have forgotten this. They don't get it. They just run off and do this and that and the other, and nobody sends them. They're not accountable to anybody. They don't answer to anybody. They just go do it. But I believe in being sent because yeah. when you're sent, you're blessed and you're under a covering. And we need to be under a covering. This church is under a covering. This is not a Lone Ranger deal. Amen? Amen. There's little other mention of those who uh, held the office of prophet beyond Philip, the evangelist, four unmarried daughters who were told in Acts 21 prophesied, but we don't know what they prophesied. We just know, what they pro- we just know that they did prophesy. So, so much, for, but it was women prophesying, and it's there in the New Testament. Now, the word prophesy does not just refer to future telling. When you think of prophecy, you go, somebody's telling what's coming in the future. But that's not the only meaning of the word prophesy. In fact, in the New Testament, prophesy refers far more to forthtelling than to foretelling. Now, I'm going to say that again. What am, what am I doing right now? I'm not foretelling. I'm not telling you something is coming in the future. I'm forthtelling. I'm declaring to you the word of God. Do you know what that is? That's a type of prophesying. You didn't know that, did you? That's a type of prophesying. That's what the word means. The Greek word prophesy means to speak forth in one of two ways. In divinely empowered forthtelling or by divinely anointed foretelling, one of the two. So if I'm foretelling, declaring the word forth to you, 
that's prophesying. Or if I'm telling you, you know, God has shown me that this and that is coming down the road, that's foretelling. But either way, it's prophesying. It not only refers to foretelling future events, that is prophesy, but it can also mean to teach, to refute, to reprove, to admonish, to comfort others, to set forth a matter of divine teaching by special faculty. That's straight out of the Greek definition. So to declare the word of God is prophesying. Now, let me tell you what I really believe. Most of the prophesying happening in the church today is of this last kind. It's forth-telling. Declaring God's written word by proclaiming or explaining it for the edification, exhortation, and comfort of God's people. And that's what 1 Corinthians 14, 3 says it is. That when a man prophesies, it is for the, it is for the edification, exhortation, and comforting of God's people. So right now, as you receive the word of God, it ought to be edifying you. It ought to be comforting you. And it ought to be, it ought to be opening up to you or explaining it to you. It ought to be exhorting you. That's what it's for. That's what we've experienced when we leave on Sunday morning. We have been edified, exhorted, and comforted. And if that's not happening, then you didn't hear the word. And that's prophesying. Sure is quiet in here tonight. Now, here's another question. Can somebody still be led of the Spirit to prophesy future events through foretelling and not just foretelling? In other words, does God ever move on anybody anymore to declare that something is coming in the future by revelation to their own soul? Does God still do that? I believe he does. But you know what? I think it's pretty rare. Let me give you an example. I've heard a lot of prophesying in my day. A lot. A lot of it was hot air. You know how I know it was hot air? Because what was prophesied never happened. Now listen to me, church. God's not confused. If Almighty God moves on somebody and says something is coming, then, friend, it's coming. It's coming. But if somebody has a good idea or they had too much pizza the night before or if they're being emotion-driven and they prophesy and it doesn't happen, then you can know if it doesn't happen... It wasn't God. You can't believe it on somebody's faith or lack of faith. Because I can show you all through the Bible where a prophecy came, and it didn't matter what the people did or didn't do, the prophecy still came to pass. So you can't blame it. Well, if they had had more faith, then what was spoken over them would have happened. No. When God speaks, God speaks. Let's remember who we're talking about. The one who said, let there be light. Let there be birds. Let there be a world. Let there be fishes in the sea. Let there be, and it came to, we're talking about the mighty Jehovah creator God. He doesn't mince words and he doesn't miss. Okay? Now, I, I believe, I'll give you for instance, I think a person, I'm not lifting a man up here, but I think one of the closest examples of a genuine modern-day prophetic person that I know of would have been David Wilkerson. I was there, uh, I had just come into the things of God in the early 1970s when David Wilkerson announced that he had been awakened one night. And and again, I'm not promoting a man. I'm promoting the God who can move on a man. But he said God woke him up and he went into 
his restroom and fell on the floor and began to weep before God. And the presence of God came upon him and showed him things that were coming to this country. Now, let me tell you a couple of things that he brought in a huge public gathering. And he was trembling. I remember listening to it, vividly reading the book that he wrote based on it. Um, he said, I saw, and this is 1972, I saw a venereal disease coming to America for which there will be no cure and it will be fatal. Eight years later, AIDS was discovered for the first time. He said, I saw a flood of vile pornography sweeping this land. And he said, I saw that there would be full frontal nudity on network television in America. He preached that in 1972. Today, this day, this morning, I read a story that that has come to ABC, CBS, and NBC who are competing with cable. When he said that, nobody believed, oh, come on, David, there's no way that's ever going to happen. It happened, just like he said. He predicted the stock market crash that happened. There were several things that God showed him that uncannily, unbelievably came to pass. He, he's really, when I stop to think of all the people I've heard through all the years, he's got to be the closest. And even being around him, I've had people tell me, man, when you were around him, it was spooky. He, he never grinned. He was always real serious. But boy, did he have the word of the Lord. He, that, I, I had a guy that, I know a guy that led worship for him for a while, and he said, you never knew what to say around him. He just made you feel like you were all thumbs, but the guy had the word of God upon him. Now, was he inerrant? No. But was he prophetic? Oh, yes. Here's what Paul said when it comes to prophecy. He said, when somebody prophesies, let two or three prophets speak and let the others, and the others are elders, judge what was said. This means that any prophesying that is foretelling should be run through the sifter of church eldership. And I would add through the sifter of God's word, which everything should be run through. Everything should be run through the word of God. Because, folks, that word is perfect. Okay? I would also add that any prophesying, and listen carefully to this one, any prophesying that is either predictive or directional, particularly over an individual, should confirm what the Lord has already been telling them. I've been around a while, and, and all through the 1970s and, and a lot of the 1980s, everybody was prophesying over everything that moved. I mean, prophecies were happening all the time. And I saw so many prophecies come that I know now were just hot air. It was just hama, 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 rub-a-dub-dub. Here's what God says. And it never happened. I saw things told to individuals that made them eventually walk away from God when they didn't happen. It's very serious when you prophesy over somebody if it's predictive or if it's directional. I saw people, I've seen people leave their jobs and move based on a prophecy and end up in a wilderness because the prophecy led them astray. Do you know how pure and clean your heart has to be 
for you to really lay hands on somebody and speak a word from God over them. Do you know how serious and weighty a responsibility that is? And I don't think it should ever be taken casually or flippantly or recklessly. Because they're sitting there thinking, all right, God is talking to me. So if God said move, I mean, I've even seen people tell individuals who they were supposed to marry. And I've seen them do it and ask me if that marriage lasted. Why'd you get married? Well, God told me to. Well, did you love them? Well, I don't know. God told me to do it. Dead in the water. But that's the kind of thing. See, it, it can open up the door. And I'm giving you the negative side here, but, but I've got to give you the real side. I've seen this. It can open up the door to manipulation of people, to abuse of people, to saying things that God didn't say. You know, one of the things that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are always talking about is false prophets in the kingdom of Judah and of Israel who were speaking out of their own hearts, and they weren't really bringing the word of God. And boy, did they come under judgment. So I've noticed that when it's a personal prophecy, and I've received a lot of them, when it's a personal prophecy, it should be something that God's already been telling me so that when it's spoken to me, it confirms to me what God's already been showing me. Where I can say, hey, man, that's a confirmation. It's not first-time news. I remember one time, I was in a whole line of preachers. Uh, There was probably 20 of us. And, and there was a prophetic guy who, uh, who had been speaking, and he said, I want all the, all the preachers here to come down, and I'm going to pray over you. So all of us preachers lined up in a big line, and I was kind of right in the middle. He went from one to the next to the next, prophesying this, that, and the other, good things, great things, incredible. came to me, looked at me, and moved right on. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe he's coming back. <laughs> maybe he's saving the best for last. So he went down and all these and, and all of them received these incredible words. And you know what? He didn't come back. He went back up there and finished his word and went on. And I'm sitting there and it started chewing on me. Now, what was it about me? I think I was right with God. And, and so I remember uh, that next week, it, it bugged me so bad. I, I called the guy that had brought him. I said, give me his number. So he gave me his number and I called him. I said, you may not remember me. Oh, I do remember you. And I said, you know, I just got to ask you. You know, you prophesied over all those pastors. You got to me. You didn't say a word. Was something wrong? Now, this is what he said. You didn't look like you needed a word. (laughs) What do you want me to be doing? I mean, what do you want me to be doing? Hanging my head, crying, shaking, trembling, dressed badly? That kind of made, well, if it was all a matter of looks, then how real was it? Because, boy, was I hoping for a word. And I said, well, it just kind of bothered me that you passed me by. Brother, I'm sorry. He was in California, so I couldn't go see him. Anyway, too often, I'm not going to tell you who it was, too often personal, too often personal prophesying, too often personal prophesying has brought confusion and disillusionment, and even damage to a person's walk with God. you got to be so careful with it. Um, for the most part, the vast majority of guidance we need is found in the pages of Scripture. It is. 
It really is. Now, I'll take a word if somebody wants to speak it over me. And I can immediately tell if it's the Holy Ghost or not. Because my spirit will say, yes, that confirms. Now, next we come to the evangelist. The role of the evangelist is not spelled out very well in the New Testament, believe it or not, though it, it clearly has to do with preaching the gospel. The word evangelist comes from a Greek word meaning to proclaim good news. Aren't you, don't you know our country needs good news? Uh, good news. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of good news, not bad news, good news. It's used twice, the word evangelist in the New Testament, once referring to Philip, and in a functional sense, referring to Timothy. Now, Philip's ministry involved preaching to the Samaritans. Philip would go to cities, and he would preach the gospel to whole cities and win them to Christ. So he was involved in first century mass evangelism. And then you remember the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, leave the revival and go, and he told him which way to go, and he sees a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot, and he says, the Holy Spirit says, join yourself to that chariot. And remember when Philip jumped up into the chariot, the eunuch was reading Isaiah 61. Wow, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news, to heal the sick, and so on and so forth. And the the Ethiopian eunuch looked at Philip and said, tell me, sir, who is this talking about? Well, you talk about a setup. But see, the Holy Spirit led him from mass evangelism to individual evangelism. But he was an evangelist. So that's one example. Now, in the early church, evangelists were itinerant preachers of the gospel, similar to tent evangelists of our day. In India, Africa, we have people that go and they evangelize in in these countries. Uh, They send teams and they travel to non-Christian villages and they share the gospel. And that's the work of evangelism, the ministry of evangelism. Now, while all Christians have an obligation to share Christ, do you, do you agree with that? Do, do you have an obligation to share Christ? If you think you do, raise your hand. If you don't think you do, raise your hand. Oh, I'm going to pray for you afterwards. Because we're all called. If you got saved, you have an obligation to share Christ. Okay? Now, everybody has that obligation who's saved, but about 10% is, is the estimate of people in churches have the actual gift of evangelism, where they are called to bring the gospel to crowds of people and give the invitation, and they come. The evangelist simply has the gift of proclaiming the gospel, and large numbers of people will turn to Jesus after they have preached. We all think Billy Graham. Church history, and some of my favorite reading of church history has to do with the evangelists of church history. Because the evangelists of church history have literally changed the history of the church. Go all the way back to the 1700s. And you have a young man named George Whitfield. And he was raised in a situation that was very immoral. He was raised in a home where every day he was in a bar where prostitution and other immoral activities were taking place. He was raised in this. But he had a gift for drama, and he had a voice that was probably unparalleled in the history of the world. If he had been a Shakespearean actor, he would have been famous because of his voice. 
he would stand up and he would preach to crowds of 30,000, and they would hear him at the end of the crowd with no microphone outside. That was his gift. He goes, uh, he was in college, and he was in college with John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And John and Charles Wesley got saved first, and they began to talk to George. George got saved. And then George preached in a church in England, one of the official churches of England. And when he preached, you must be born again, they kicked him out. They said, we don't want to hear that. And they kicked him out. If you can imagine, a young man, George Whitfield, he was in his 20s, low 20s. But he preached, and they kicked him out for saying, you must be born again. He said, okay, well, then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the fields. And he went down, and there were coal miners working in fields nearby. And he went down in, and where there was one of these holes that led down into the mine. And he yelled down into that mine, and he said, I will be preaching in this field at 2 this afternoon. He came back, and there was a sea of coal-blackened faces, and he let it go. And he said in his autobiography, he said, I will never forget the little white rivers that their tears cut through the coal dust on their faces as they heard the gospel of good news and came to Christ. And that's how he started. Now, George Whitfield was a pure evangelist. And so he talked John Wesley into going to the fields with him. John Wesley would never have field preached had it not been for George Whitfield. But those two men, along with Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, totally transformed England and America, turned it upside down, and they were the catalyst of the Great Awakening. And I believe without the Great Awakening, there would have been no America. The Great Awakening preceded America, preceded uh, the writing of the Constitution preceded all of that, but it had within it the seedbed of personal freedom, and that's where the Constitution came from. Now, that's Whitfield. Then if you go into the 1800s, came the mass evangelism efforts of D.L. Moody, who was a Chicago shoe salesman who got converted, totally gave his heart to Christ, and, and God used him to preach the gospel to all of England and all of America. And once again, the whole church world was changed because of D.L. Moody. But then you go into the 1900s, and a well-known baseball player named Billy Sunday got saved and was so animated when he preached, he would jump up and down on one leg with the other leg pulled back like he was about to preach a ba- uh, pitch baseball. He would lean way back when he preached, and he would look like he was going to just hurl a baseball your way. He was very animated. He would hop around. He, he, he would jump and he would spin and he would preach his heart out. And whole towns had all their bars shut down because of the preaching of Billy Sunday. Right behind Billy Sunday came our very own Billy Graham, who has preached to more people in person than any man in history. Now, you notice that the evangelist, the gift of the real evangelist, the office of the evangelist has changed church history. And that's just a couple of examples. I would have to say that the only America or American that I know of right now who's holding purely evangelistic meetings would be Greg Laurie. He's the only one who I know of. Huge crowds are coming and he preaches and I watched it in person just a few weeks ago. He gives the invitation. His microphone didn't even work good. 
in, in that American Airlines setting, his microphone was popping and going in and out. And even with a messed up, kind of hard to understand message at times, when he gave the invitation, whoosh. And he just happens to be a pastor. And then we come to the work of the pastor. Let me just go through this real quickly and we're done. Now, the Greek construction of verse 11 suggests that pastors and teachers should be combined into one ministry of pastor-teacher, and I believe that. I agree. I don't see how somebody can be a pastor without a teaching gift because Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. The word pastor with the related word pastor, P-A-S-T-U-R-E, means literally shepherd. That's what pastor means. In fact, in Spanish, el pastor can refer to either a herder of sheep or a religious leader. Okay? So a real shepherd of sheep leads the flock, protects it, guides it to places where there is grass to eat and water to drink, and he heals the sheep that are hurt. He assists them in birth, and with gentleness he cares for the flock, and that's a pastor. This describes exactly what a spiritual leader does for a group or a congregation, which is often referred to in the Bible as a flock. Everybody say, bah. Okay. The larger the church is, the more pastors are needed. So the elders of a church are pastoral extensions of the senior pastor, and they are to be apt to teach and help to oversee the flock. And then finally, we have the teacher. We'll close with this. The teacher, didaskalos, didaskalos is the Greek, has the gift of explaining the word of making it plain. What am I up here doing? I'm explaining the word, and I hope I'm making it plain. Okay? Because I am a pastor. Now, I do evangelistic work. Uh, I have been, uh, served in an apostolic capacity at times, but I'm essentially a pastor, and, uh, and so I teach. Now, the teacher grounds people in God's truth and helps them to apply that truth to their everyday lives. In the book of Nehemiah, there's a great description of the teacher's ministry. Here it is. So they, the Levites, read distinctly from the Word of God, and they gave the sense and helped the people to understand the meaning. That's the ministry of the teacher. None of these offices can be drawn with heavy black markers because they often fade into one another. Timothy was a pastor and a teacher, but also to do, told to do the work of an evangelist. Paul was an apostle, but he clearly functioned as a pastor sometimes, as well as a teacher, and he certainly prophesied. You can read his letters. So sometimes in a person's lifetime, the gifting can switch. But I've always believed that a man or a woman have one basic gift. They may move in others, but they have one fundamental gift. Mine is pastoring. Okay? So that's the five offices. Next time, we're going to look at God's plan for mighty release of ministry. Let's stand up, can we? <clears throat> Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord and pray together. Father, we just thank you. For these incredible offices, these gifts you have given to your church, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, for the perfecting of the saints to do the work of ministry. We thank you for these giftings and we thank you, Lord God, that every person in this congregation has a gift and have been sown into the world as a seed. Now, would you just say with me right now, church, say, I'm a sown seed into the world around me. Help me, Lord, to reproduce after my own kind 
in Jesus' mighty name. Let's sing a stanza, Keith, and then we're going to go. Thank you.